50 through 53. Luke chapter 24, verses 50 through 53. And these verses are the verses that God in his providence has led us to this morning as we've made our way verse by verse through Luke's gospel, which is what we've done with really a standalone message here and there since December 9th of 2018. You were younger then. You looked better too. So for the past four years and three months, we have sought to understand the true meaning of every verse in this book. We've been shaped by this book And our church has uh, been in here for a long time, and today we come to the end, the end. Our church began two years and three months before starting the book of Luke. So out of the six and a half years exactly that we've been a church, our church has been in Luke for four years and three months out of those six years six and a half years, which is about 65% of the life of our church. So you're about 65% Lucan, okay? (laughs) And from this book, we truly have grown up. We have learned, really, a lot of different things. We've learned the storyline of the Bible. We've learned about redemptive history, We've learned about the meta-narrative of Scripture, really salvific history, or in other words, God's progression through the entire Bible and where every text lands in light of that progression. We've learned about that by studying this book because all of God's Word really comes to the pinnacle in the Gospels, in the coming of God's Christ. And so all the progressing towards this point now in history with the coming of the Messiah is where we landed. And so we've been really forced to understand this progression. You have been forced to understand this this progression through Scripture. And I think that's incredible because we've had to understand this progression through God's salvific history in in order to understand every true meaning of each section that we're in as we study Luke. We've had to refer back to God's dealings with Israel. We've had to refer back to Israel's understanding of Yahweh and their relationship with him. We've had to really look at God's commands and promises from the Old Testament that are now being fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. You've had to know about those things. Jesus is not just speaking random things here. This is what he said back in Deuteronomy or, or Exodus or Leviticus, etc. So you've been forced to have good biblical theology, which by the way, in addition to your systematic theology, your biblical theology is incredibly important, that you'd understand the storyline of Scripture and where each text lands in order to understand its true meaning. That's really important. Remember, the Old Testament's the anticipation of Christ, the Gospels, the explanation of Christ, Acts, the proclamation of Christ, all the rest of the New Testament books, the explanation of Christ, or, or the, uh, yeah, the explanation and then in the, in the last book of the Bible, the consummation of all of Christ's work. And so that's how you have to understand each text. Where is it in light of that progression? And it's been really, really good to be in Luke to see that. And I can't wait till we get another gospel in us. I won't take us to another one right away. Um, because it is so vital to you understanding the whole entire Bible. And so now we then see, looking ahead, we've seen into the past, but from the book of Luke, we've then seen into the future, because he's spoken of the, go- the proclamation of the gospel, or the apostles' explanation of the gospel in the rest of the New Testament, looking forward. 
or the exhortations in the rest of the New Testament in light of the gospel. So we've looked back, we've looked forward, we know where we're at, right? And so we've looked then into the future even at Christ's return. We've seen eschatological issues because Christ refers to this future so often. And remember, his disciples, they're confused with his first coming versus his second coming. He said, no, no, now is the time of saving, seeking and saving. The future will be a time of judgment. It's not for anyone to know the time or the date or the place. Although we have clues about the place, I'll tell you about that today. But all of that to say we've looked in the past and we've looked in the future, all from being in the gospel here in Luke. And we've really developed, in addition to all of this, a literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic. I mean, you're looking at this, and there, when we read the Gospels, I hope you have realized over the past four and a half years that you can understand the Bible. This is not to be understood in some allegorical fashion. You're not looking behind the text and saying, what's really Jesus' meaning here? I don't think we're supposed to understand. Uh, God wrote his word to his people so that you could what? understand. So you're not, you're not wondering anymore, what's he really saying here? Does this have some obscure meaning that I can't really get to? No, it's pretty plain. What he says is what he means, and what he means is what he says. So you've developed this hermeneutic. It's not of some obscure, allegorical, man-centered meaning to these passages, but we've taken each verse word by word, understanding its plain and clear meaning in light of each context. So important but listen now, we've looked in the past, we've looked in the future, we've developed a hermeneutic. More than any of that, we have seen at the center of all of this, we've spent four years and three months with Jesus Christ. We've walked with the most fascinating, most glorious, most truthful, most righteous, most loving, man to ever walk the earth. The God-man. The God on earth as a man. And we've seen his perfect obedience. We've seen his truthful teaching. We've seen his love for his father. We've seen his gracious love towards man. We've seen his unwavering spirit for the truth. We've seen his sacrificial death. And we've seen his glorious resurrection. And we've really tried to match the tone in every text. And I think, and by the way, that's, I don't try to just match what is being said here, but the tone of the text. What tone do I take when I wake up in the morning? Do I just say, I'm feeling pretty grumpy today, so I'm going to get up and preach angry. Or I'm, I'm feeling pretty happy today, so I'm just going to let it, you know, just be, you know, happy in the pulpit. No, we match the tone of the text so that it, the text can be properly conveyed in every sense to you. But in doing so, I think we've been surprised by our false ideas about Jesus going into it. But he has now been revealed to us rightly through the scriptures. We've seen his judgment and his condemnation on false teachers. We've understood his gospel, the good news. We've seen him confirm that he is the anticipated, long-expected Messiah. We've understood more deeply substitutionary atonement and how it's really the center of our faith. We've understood all of his divine qualities and my prayer through all of this is not that you've been only informed, though that is very important, but that you've been, what? Transformed. That you've not only been informed, but that you've been transformed. And with all of this said, I'm proud of us. I'm proud of us. Those who've made it. I'm proud of us. We haven't deviated. We haven't wavered. We haven't given in. We haven't skipped over texts, which you would have known because I said we're going to start at the beginning or we're going to go to the end. And you say, well, why don't we do this one? 
Why, which is why, by the way, exposition is so healthy and important because God will ensure that you have a well-balanced diet. That you have a well-balanced diet. If I come up with every week, you're going to be malnourished in some other area, right? You're going to get a lot of this and not maybe a lot of this, right? You won't be eating your vegetables. But we get a well-balanced diet from looking at the scripture through verse-by-verse exposition, and it will ensure, if we keep going, that you will get the entire counsel of what? Of God. And uh, we let God speak, and we just pick up the next verse so that we really can't get in the way each week, right? And we've not compromised. We've not performed eisegesis, which because we have to progress through these contexts, we've had to see a God-centered picture of what this is because God is determining what each passage means rather than an us-centered or me-centered because we've had to progress through it. And so you've had four and a half years nearly of not what originates in my mind and therefore is limited. By the way, I don't know what I don't know. So if I have to come up with all the series and the series names and the topics and the pictures and the this and then that, you will only get what I know. If it originates from me, just think about this, you'll only get what I know. And so you'll be very limited. But if it originates with God, we just say, let's just start in verse one here and keep going. Then you'll get what he knows things that we don't know. And he'll tell us what we need to know before we even know that we need to know it. And so you've had what's originated in God's mind as he intended, and therefore he's told us what we don't know. And by the way, this is what we're going to continue to do. Um, I know you're wondering what's next. Um, I don't know. (laughs) Told you, I don't know a lot of things. I'm between two books. And I'm convicted that the Lord wants both of these books for us, 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians. So I don't know which one we're going to go to next, but there you go. There's the people are talking and chattering and saying, I, I can't tell you. Here it is. The cat's out of the bag. 1 Thessalonians or 1 Corinthians. We can't go wrong either way, okay? Because God's revealed will is to preach the word, right? And... Um, And so either way, you're going to get the word, and all of it is equally important for us. But the plan is to start the week after Easter, okay? So next week um, will be a standalone message. Um, And then the following week, Mike will continue through his Roman series. By the way, in case you don't know all that that's going on, it's like we're working through Luke. In addition to that, every time... You know, for instance, Mike gets to preach and just using him as as an example, he's just making his way through the book of Romans. Um, And so he'll do that again in a couple of weeks. Um, At the same time, in the evenings, we're teaching doctrinal clarity and Bo every third week is teaching through the book of Psalms. And, uh, and then we've got, uh, obviously, more teaching on uh, biblical counseling, et cetera, from when Pastor Chad's up here or Pastor Josh teaches usually the next Luke passage. But um, it's kind of cool that we have Luke going on, as well as a series in Romans, as well as a series in Psalms, as well as a more topical series through doctrinal clarity, as well as all your Sunday school classes, and um, et cetera. So, um, So next week, standalone, then Mike, then we'll have Palm Sunday, then Easter, and then we'll we'll start. Um, I don't know yet, though I don't know yet, and I've been praying about this. I have two stacks of commentaries on my floor that uh, I had to convince Mike. No, he was gracious. I said, I need this one and this one and this one and this one. And he, uh, he looked at our budget. But I got two stacks of commentaries both on my floor, and I don't know which one we're going to get, and I shouldn't tell you that because one of you is going to steal the other stack that, that you want the other book to be preached, right? And you'll steal that one. So uh, I'll only be left with one, and I'll have to preach that one. But I know we won't change verse-by-verse exposition, okay? God-exalting, Christ-centered, text-driven, 
church edifying, lost saving, Holy Spirit empowered, clear, accurate explanation of God's word, verse by verse, as he intended. And the reason is God promises, listen now, God promises to honor his word. That's always been the motivation from the beginning. God promises to honor his word. So here's what we say. I'm just going to stick with his word as close as I can. And that's what we've said since the beginning. And he's just built his church. So God promises to honor his word. If I just, there's nothing that's going to make me waver from that. Nothing. So we're going to just stick with it because he says he's going to honor it. It might not look like he's honoring it at all times, but he said he's going to honor it. So I want to be the one who fears and trembles at his, at his word. This has always been the focus for us. And we're not going to change, though we've had a lot of people try to change us through this time we've been in Luke. A lot of people are trying to change us, continue to try to change us, which a lot of that I don't understand. But God has honored his word. He's saved through this book and he's sanctified through this book. And we're in a long line of men. By the way, did you know we're in a long line of men? We're in the long line of men going back to the church fathers, going back to the reformers, going back to the Puritans. And here we sit. So we definitely are not changing. We are going to stick with the people who have trusted the word of God, stood for the word of God, suffered for the word of God, but have done exactly what we're doing in history, right? We're not standing alone. We're not originists, right? We're not originists. We're just going to teach the word and going back even in line with the apostles. So y'all ready to finish this well? Verse 50 through 53 of Luke chapter 24. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, what we're seeing in this particular passage is easy to see. This is Christ's return to heaven. This is Christ's return to heaven. In other words, this is Christ's ascension. Christ's ascension. But he's not going someplace he's never been. He's returning to someplace that he was. In his proper place. So I've entitled this message, excuse me, the Lord's Ascension. For the Lord Jesus Christ, there was condescension. There was incarnation. There was perfection. There was instruction. There was crucifixion. There was resurrection. There was a time of exhortation. And now here's his time of exaltation. He's come down. He's been lifted up. He was taken down. He was then raised up. And now he would ascend up and stay up until he comes back down. Most recently after his resurrection, he would appear to his disciples. Remember this? He would exposit the word to them, open it, and then open up their minds, sovereignly illuminating the scriptures. Then after the resurrection, after he explained the word, opened their minds, then he commissioned them to proclaim his salvation, which is repentance for the forgiveness of sins in the name of Christ to the nations. And then he told them to wait for the inauguration of the Holy Spirit, which will happen in Jerusalem. And now... It's time to, for him to return to his father. 
And this is where he will remain until he returns. When he returns to get his true church, as they await his return, he will be in heaven. And this moment, Christ's ascension and exaltation, it would bring clarity, closure, and confidence to his disciples. Closure, clarity, confidence, commissioning, all of this to his disciples. Because this would mark the end of Christ's earthly ministry. This is the end of it. He accomplished God's plan to provide salvation. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. This was finished. In addition to this, it marks the beginning of the church's responsibility then to proclaim this salvation until his return. Just as his ascension, in addition to all of this, the finishing of his work, the beginning of the church's work, in addition to this, this ascension would also vindicate him again. It would vindicate him again. So he would ascend and it would vindicate him once again, proving to be the Lord of all who is exalted at the right hand of the Father. Everything he said is true. He is who he is. He accomplished what he accomplished. Watch this. He's going into heaven. He's vindicated again. And it would mark the end of his surrender of divine privileges. Remember, Philippians chapter 2 tells us all about that. That is the quintessential text if you want to understand how did this God become man? What happened? What did he do in willingly giving up his divine rights? Philippians 2 tells us he took the form of a servant born in human likeness. And the syntax there and the grammar there and the Greek there is very enlightening. Which would also mean when he returned to heaven, he would take back his place, his privileges that belonged to him that John 17, 5 says were his before the world was ever created. And so he left heaven as spirit and he would return to heaven as the God man and he would remain in that form forever. It would also mean the coming of the Holy Spirit. John 7, 39 says that the Holy Spirit had not come yet because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So when he goes to heaven, the Holy Spirit will come. It will also mark the beginning of Jesus preparing heaven for believers, his true carpenter work, right? He's doing some work up in heaven. He's preparing a place, John 14 says. If it wasn't so, he, wouldn't, he would have told us. So he's doing some work up there, construction work, and he was going to prepare a place for all the redeemed. Ephesians 1, let's just turn there for a second. Ephesians 1 says, his ascension also means the headship for the church. Ephesians chapter 1, it means the beginning of his headship. For the church, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When he ascended, he assumed his rightful place as the head of the church. In addition to this, during his ascension, go to Ephesians chapter 4, just a page over. Verses 7 through 12 tells us it would also be a time when he would give gifted men to lead his church. 
apostles, New Testament prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers. Ephesians chapter four, verses seven through 12. But this grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave his gift to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. So he had to descend in order to what? Ascend. That's pretty clear. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Hebrews chapter two, Hebrews chapter four, Hebrews chapter seven would also mean it would be the start when he ascended of his intercessory work for believers in heaven. Also, his ascension would guarantee his return. He didn't die again. He's forever alive in heaven. And as the angels say in the book of Acts, he will come back in the same way that he what? That he left. Why are you looking up? He's going to come back. In which way? In the same way that he left. So... All of this is very significant. Christ's ascension then would bring closure. It's finished. It would bring confidence. He's the Lord. It would bring commission. The baton is being passed. It's our turn now. It would bring clear expectation. He's coming back. Right? The ascension does all of this. The ascension does all of this. Closure. The substitutionary work is finished. Confidence. He's the Lord. Look, he's raising up to heaven. Commission. He's leaving. It's our turn. Baton being passed. Clear expectation. He's alive forever and is coming back. And so this is what it brings for us. Let's look at Luke's account of this once and for all event. The matter can be really divided into three parts, three headings. I want to lay before you this morning. Number one, the blessing in verse 50. Number two, the departure in verse 51. And number three, the response in verses 52 through 53. Pretty clear, straightforward. You can see it yourself. And Luke gives it to us in this way. And so let's start with the first heading the blessing in verse 50. Luke, let's, we got to go back to Luke here. I'm still in Ephesians. I don't know if you are too. Go back to Luke there. Verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. That's pretty straightforward. As we begin this very brief but incredible account, which, by the way, is pretty typical of Luke, right? He gives this, he adds to the amazement of a situation by making it more brief. And so this is typical of Luke. Verse 50 starts with this. And he, meaning Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany. Now, listen. Bethany is, a, is used as a broad term occasionally. It tells us of a general location. I put the map up there for you. People always love when I use maps. There it is, right there. You see Jerusalem, and you see the expansion of that little box there. Jerusalem, and right by Jerusalem there, you have Bethany. And that's, is the, Jerusalem and Bethany is separated by a mountain called the what? Mount of Olives. And it really kind of encompasses both cities, okay? So, so this is where this is happening. Bethany being a broad term, which I'm going to tell you is more specifically the Mount of Olives is where this is occurring. But we can see this in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Just turn over to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 12. Now, while you're there, let me tell you this. And listen while you're turning, if you can. The ascension of Christ acts as the culmination. Listen now. The ascension of Christ 
acts as the culmination of one significant time in redemptive history, namely Christ's work on earth. And that's signified by, the, by, by this being at the closing of the gospel accounts. So you have the gospel account, which is Christ's coming and the ascension closing it out. This is the closing of one significant time in redemptive history, namely the coming of the Messiah and his work. While at the same time, the ascension inaugurates another important time in redemptive history signaled by being at the beginning of the book of what? Acts. And it's the marking of the coming of the Holy Spirit, the beginning of the fulfilling of the Great Commission, the foundation of the church being built. And so the ascension marks the end and marks the beginning, which is why there's this overlap in Luke's writing, which is perfect. I love it. So let's read Acts 1, 1 through 12. In the first book, O Theophilus, meaning his gospel, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given the commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So first book, Jesus's life until he ascended. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering and resurrection by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. We've seen that, right? But to wait there for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This is speaking now of his second coming. And Jesus, Jesus responds in light of his second coming. It is not for you to know the time, times of the seasons of the Father he has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power now when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, here's the ascension, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Here's our key verse. All of that to just set up this one. You ready? For what we're talking about, at least right now. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called what? Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. So all this to say, what we see in verse 12 of Acts 1 is that they return from the Mount of Olives to the city of Jerusalem. Bethany is located on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. So where they're at currently, the location that they are in Luke chapter 24, verse 50, is Bethany, more specifically, the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. They're on the Mount of Olives near Bethany. This is the location. And we see even earlier in Jesus's ministry, Mark chapter 11, it says this. It says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. So this can be used to describe really the same place. So Bethany, more specifically, the Mount of Olives is where they are. Now listen, this is important. This is the order of events, okay? The order of events goes that Jesus resurrected. He appeared to the women near the tomb. That afternoon, he appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Then he appeared to the group of disciples minus Thomas in the upper room on Sunday night. Then he appeared to the disciples with Thomas eight days later. Then at some point before the ascension, he meets with the disciples 
This is most likely the time that 1 Corinthians 15, 6 says 500 at one time saw him. This is most likely the time he gave the Great Commission, which was on the mountain in Galilee. You remember he said, or the angel said, he's going to meet you in Galilee on the mountain that he told you. There's a lot of disciples in the Galilee region. And so he would go there, give Matthew 28, 7, says the disciple, the angel said, go to Galilee, where he said he was going to meet you. So he goes to Galilee at some point before the ascension, and he gives the Great Commission, 500 people at once, and, um, and uh, we see the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 16 through 20, and that's what we saw in our previous section of Luke. Remember, Luke condenses, and so we're seeing kind of a lot of post-resurrection situations all at one time, but very lastly, we saw the Great Commission, Luke's version of it, and so that just happened and then from there, Jesus said, you're going to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. So they give, he gives this great commission on the mountain in Galilee. He tells them they're going to remain in Jerusalem at some point until the Holy Spirit comes. And so after the great commission, at some point, he travels with them. We know because it says he led them out. He travels with them from the Galilean region to Bethany, more specifically the Mount of Olives, and what takes place there is what's recorded in these three specific verses, and in Acts 1, verses 6 through 12 that we just read. On the Mount of Olives, after the Great Commission, and he's about to ascend, and he led them out there, and they're going to go to Jerusalem after he's done with them in Bethany. All of this occurred, by the way, over this 40-day period. And so he was busy in ministry. And they would obey exactly what he told them when he's done. They would go to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. They would receive the Holy Spirit, and then they would begin to proclaim the gospel message within Jerusalem and take it beyond. So Mark, remember, um, if, if you know Mark at the end there, uh, the question is whether or not that was included in the... New Testament manuscripts, but just to reference it, he's, he condenses as well. And he says, after the Great Commission, he writes, Mark chapter 16, verses 19 through 20. So then after he had spoken to them, which is the Great Commission, listen, Mark is just speaking of the Great Commission and then into the Ascension. After he had spoken to them, he was taken up, right? And some kind of later point in Bethany, into heaven, where he sat down at the right hand of God and they went out, so implying they were in Jerusalem, they got the Holy Spirit, and then they obeyed the Lord's command to proclaim the gospel, preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs, which, by the way, is what the majority of the miraculous sign gifts were for. 1 Corinthians 14.22 says, for example, specifically that tongues is used to speak in a previously unlearned foreign language was a sign for unbelievers, so that the coming of tongues at Pentecost signifying that the message of the gospel was going to be spoken everywhere to the ends of the earth. And people would hear it in their language. They would confirm the testimony of the gospel that it was true and the gospel would spread. Of course, first, Second Corinthians 12, 12 calls these the signs of the apostles. So the gospel would spread from there, from Jerusalem to the nations. So from that point, the gospel would be made known by his apostles. That's the order. That's the progression from the time of his resurrection to the time the apostles are taking this gospel message and going out. So now, at this moment, he's in Bethany on the Mount of Olives. And by the way, you say, why are you spending so much time telling us this? This is a very significant place. Very significant place. John eleven eighteen says that it was two miles from Jerusalem. And you remember now, listen, John 11, 1 says that Martha, Mary, and their brother, Lazarus, I only heard a few of you, lived there. Jesus, remember this, would stay out there, and he began staying there on Sunday night during Passion Week. Remember, he comes in Sunday night, he stays there, a whole crowd comes, then he goes into Jerusalem on Monday. Remember this? The triumphal entry. And then he stays there Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night during Passion Week. And Mount of Olives is not only 
two miles from Jerusalem, not only where he stayed during Passion Week with his close friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, but it's also Matthew 24, 3 says, where he gave the Olivet Discourse, hence the name Olivet Discourse. And this is where it says that he sat down and he met with his disciples privately and so, and he taught them. This is why we often describe our Sunday mornings as kind of, you know, metaphorically speaking, the Mount of Transfiguration, where we're in high-level worship to, to our God, and our Sunday evenings, more of the Mount of Olives. Jesus kind of sat down there. It says he sat when he taught. He was talking with them privately. That's kind of what we want the picture to be. And so this is, this is what Jesus did at the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is also where Jesus went with his disciples after the Last Supper. You remember this? When they left the upper room, they walked to the mountain. Remember, we said because of the traveling during Passion Week, he would go from Jerusalem to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house, which is up over the mountain on the other side in Bethany every day. And so coming out of the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, he would go up onto the mountain, probably where the place that they would oftentimes stop when they were making that journey. And that's where he would be after his supper on, um, on Thursday night. And so during Passion Week, so after the last, last Supper, they went there and remember what happened there on the Mount of Olives. He fell on his face. He prayed to the Father. And he would be betrayed by a close friend and he'd be arrested in the same place. And here's the greatest of all. Zechariah chapter 14, verse four, tells us that the Mount of Olives is also where he will return when he comes back. Just turn there, Zechariah chapter 14. I put a little place thing there, so I cheated here, okay? Because I knew I was gonna go here. It might take you a little while to find that. So I'm just going to start reading. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. On that day, speaking of his second coming, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. So this is where he's going to return. In his second coming, after the time of the tribulation, when he comes to defeat the, the enemies of his people, Jerusalem, the Israelites, and when he comes to bring together his believers, establish his reign on the earth, he will come back to this place called the Mount of what? Olives. And so this is pretty amazing. This is where he's at. And so this is where Jesus is at the end of his 40 days post-resurrection. And what does he do? Look at verse 50. He goes out, he leads them out as far as Bethany, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Eulageo. It's just an act of raising his hands and bestowing benediction. Benediction. You can just think about the way that that word, which is translated, which is often used to describe this process as a good saying. Good saying. That's what he's doing. It's a saying to their benefit. He's blessing them. And it signifies really a note of solemnity, a note of closure, a note of passing the baton, a note of giving responsibility to them, and a note of of loving them. It's really, listen now, the closure of a very significant occasion and a commissioning of them to do what he's told them to do as they leave. Think about our benedictions at the end of our church services, right? It's essentially this. This time is now closed and it's now to you to take what you heard from the Lord's words and to do what he said. And God is with you as you do, right? And to apply it. And to learn and to, 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 
to learn to apply what he's taught you and to go out and practice it and that he's with you, et cetera. You see this at the end of all of our New Testament, uh, not all of them, but you see a form of this in, in the New Testament at the end of the letters. And Jesus' last act in this gospel, really, uh, not only in this gospel, but it just reality, is him commending his disciples to God's care, to God's work. God is watching them. God is with them. They are to take this now, all of his teaching, all of his commissioning, and go and do what he said. And this is, this is what they are to do. The provision for salvation for repentant sinners is complete. It can't be added to. It can't be taken away from. It is finished. Now they are to take this reality. They're to live in light of it. They're to proclaim it to the world. They're to apply his teachings. They're, they know that God is watching over them, caring for them. And as they do, his spirit will be in them and help them. And Jesus goes to prepare a place for them. And he will be back. This is the commission. This is the blessing, the benediction to them. It gives the disciples closure. It gives them confidence. It gives them clarity. It gives them commissioning to obey what he said. He's blessing them. Benediction. It's a good saying. Now go and do this. God's with you. I'll be back. His spirit will be in you. We're passing the baton. Go now. Get out of here. And listen, by extension, this Benediction does the same thing for us. Because we live in this same time, post-apostolic, but before his return. And so his blessing to you is the same. Salvation's completed. I've provided every means for people to be saved. I've perfectly completed God's plan. Go now, follow his words with his spirit inside you. Do what he said I'll be with you. I'm coming back. And so this gives us closure. His work is complete. It gives us care. His love is in us and with us. It gives us confidence. He's the Lord. He ascended. He's enthroned in heaven. His gospel is true. His authority is behind us. Gives us commissioning. He's blessed us and sent us to make disciples and to build his church. The question is this. Will you live in light of his benediction and blessing? Will you live in light of it? Will you remember it? And will you say, Jesus has now commissioned me. His time has closed. I have confidence he's the ascended Lord. And I'm gonna go do what he said. Will that benediction and blessing have its effect on you? Now let's move to the second point here, the departure. As he's blessing them, it begins, uh, it, it, and the blessing really being the very last thing he does, Jesus then departs. Verse 51. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Pretty straightforward. While he blesses them, he elevates now, this part is actually different than the benediction and blessing we give here at the church, okay, at the end of the service. He's elevating, okay? We, we can't do that here, okay? So he's elevating as he's giving them this blessing. He's parting, he's lifting up, he's being carried up into heaven. And once again, listen now, this is the vindication of the Lord. He's blessing them. As he's blessing them, he elevates into heaven, and this is exactly the vindication that his disciples needed to see. Look at Luke chapter 22, verses, verse 69. Just turn back a couple pages. Luke 22, verse 69. This is, this is fulfilling exactly what he said, Jesus said would happen at his tri when, uh, during his trials. Look at verse 69. It says this. He, he's being accused He's saying, listen, I told you these things about who I am, but you're not going to believe me. And if I, if I answer you, you're not going to believe what I said. Verse 69, he says then, but from now on, you want proof that I am who I said I am? Look at this, verse 69. From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. You're going to see that I am who I'm saying that I am when I 
ascend to the right hand of the Father. And this fulfills what he said at his trials, but he was put to death for his claim to be divine. His claim was though true and his execution was therefore unjust. And his claim then when he rose, I mean, when he ascended was also not rejected by the father because when he ascends, he's not rejected by the father, but embraced and received. Turn to Acts chapter two, verses 36, 30 through 36. Acts chapter two, verses 30 through 36. Acts 2, 30 through 36. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has, had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he fought, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, that he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. This is what the ascension does. You ready? That God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Ascension, vindication. You ready for this? He's the Lord. He's the Lord. He's vindicated in his resurrection. He's vindicated in his ascension and he will be vindicated in his return. And so really beginning of this heavenly reign post the incarnation, listen now, this is really the beginning of his heavenly reign after his incarnation. He ascends up into heaven and begins to reign again, reign and rule, which is after his incarnation. He begins distributing these salvific benefits and promises to his people, everything we need pertaining to life and godliness, right? He gives to his people after his ascension and things would not get worse, but they would get better during this time. He said, it's better that I go because when I go, his spirit would not be around us. It would be what? In us, his saints. And he would mediate on their behalf in heaven, Hebrews 2, 1 through 18. Let's turn there. I mean, this is just speaking of the glorious truths about the, about the ascended Lord. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Let's just read it together. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the word, the world to come in which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see we do not yet say, see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom by and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God 
uh, children God has given me. Since therefore the children shall uh, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that help, uh, that help that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being what? Tempted. I mean, you just see all the way from the crucifixion on into his ascension on into his now priestly work in heaven. What a marvelous thing. He's up in heaven. He's distributed gifts. He's vindicated himself as the Lord. All of this deals with his just rising. What do you say about him when he rises up to, your, uh, up to heaven, right? This verse here, what, what do we even say? Well, we say what it accomplishes. He's now the great and faithful high priest who intercedes on our behalf, vindicates him as the Lord. He's distributed gifts to his church. His spirit is in his people. And now we are his ambassadors. He has the rightful place of glory, which all believers want to rejoice in. Listen, you should rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who is worthy, is now seated at the right hand of the Father. You should rejoice in that. That should make you want to scream. There we go. All believers rejoice because when he ascended, he went immediately to the right hand of the Father, which is described as the third heaven, right? Paul talks about the third heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. There's the heaven, this planet, the sky, and then just heaven, which is the heaven before he establishes heaven on earth. It's just heaven, which you know is heaven, the third heaven. That's where Jesus ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father. And we can see this all over the scripture. Let me just show you a couple. Ephesians chapter 1. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. I think we already looked at that one. Let's look at it again. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his, what? Right hand. Just go over to Colossians chapter three. Verse one. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the, what? Right hand of God. Go just flip over to First Peter. Chapter three. Verse 22. Who has gone into heaven, speaking of Jesus, and is now, is at the right hand, what? Right hand of God. Go to Romans 8. Go back a little bit. Romans chapter 8. Verse 34. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus, when he died, when he, I mean, when he ascended at this moment, not only does his intercessory work begin, not only does the church's work begin, not only does the Holy Spirit come, not only does this vindicate him at Lord as Lord, but he is now in his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father, meaning equality. He completed his work and he is sitting down. He's done. He's done. Jesus has completed his work. He's commissioned his disciples. He's blessed his disciples. He's been shown to be Lord. He is authoritatively now in his place in heaven at the right hand of the Father, the place of privilege and the place of, of all of his uh, divine qualities in full effect. And, uh, and he sits there. This is indeed the one who has ascended to God and he is your Lord. He is your Lord. And so now at the end of this, go back to Luke chapter 24. as you might be feeling right now, I know I'm feeling and thinking, they respond in worship to this great reality that Jesus, the son of God, has ascended back to his rightful place at the right hand of God. Which by the way, John chapter 17 points us to the fact that disciples love, true disciples love his glory. You know that? Disciples love the display of who he is. 
that should get you excited. When you see Jesus and who he is, rightly manifesting who he is, you as a disciple of Christ should love that. If you don't love that, there's something wrong. And I mean it. Like you need, we need to talk about your, where you're at spiritually. You should love Jesus being in his rightful place and his holiness being made manifest. Because you love it. You know it's good. You love him. You know he's on your side and you on his. You know what he's done. I mean, you should love it. And so, and by the way, Jesus loved his father's glory. And then the disciples loved Jesus's glory. And then the father loved Jesus's glory. And then Jesus wants his disciples to be with the father and him so they can see his glory so that their joy in his glory may be made complete. Some people say, well, I think it's pretty selfish of God that he made everybody for his glory. Do you know that enjoying his glory forever is the greatest thing that you could ever receive? What an incredible thing. That's the greatest thing that you could ever get. So he, Jesus, wants the greatest thing for you to be where he is so you can see his glory, so you can enjoy it forever and receive the greatest thing that you could ever have. And so this is what his disciples here love and want. Verse 52 through 53. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is pretty simple and straightforward. The entourage of disciples respond in worship. They have now, listen, listen close. We're almost done. Full understanding. The Old Testament has been explained to them. Their minds have been illuminated. They know exactly who Christ is. They know exactly all of the Old Testament made plain and explained about Christ. They're not confused anymore. I thought this coming Christ, this coming Messiah was going to conquer our enemies, thinking Gentiles. How in the world could he die and still be the Messiah? They're not confused about that anymore. They might be confused about his second coming and how that's all working. But at this point, they're not confused about anything to do with who he is and what he's accomplished. Now they have full understanding that God has opened, Jesus has opened up their mind and they have had the scriptures explained to him. And now they're watching their Lord ascend into heaven. Their confusion has been cleared. They are convinced that he is the Messiah. They get it. They understand his salvation in light of the entire Old Testament. The scriptures have been explained, which has been, by the way, a moment of clarity for them, which I think Luke really wants to make a point. When the scriptures are explained, you as a disciple cannot be confused. You don't have to be confused. You can have clarity, right? And so they understand Jesus. They have a knowledge of who he is, his His resurrection has given them confidence. His post-resurrection appearance, appearances have convinced them. Uh, they know what the, the schedule of redemption history is. Okay, we're actually right on track. We're right on target right now. The plan is on track. He, Jesus was supposed to do this, and now this is supposed to happen. They have complete confidence in all of this. They know what the predetermined plan of God in light of the Old Testament was, and now they're ready to go and proclaim his message. All of this, they have complete clarity, and the Spirit would come and give them boldness and further remembrance, passion, love, and so they have no more confusion. They have complete clarity. Jesus is vindicated in their minds as Lord, and they're fully aware of what he's accomplished in salvation. So verse 52, here's what they do. In obedience, as they, Jesus ascends, they return to where? Jerusalem, where exactly they are supposed to be. Jesus told them where they're supposed to go, and this is exactly where they're supposed to go. They, he, they obey him. And we saw this in Acts 40, uh, uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 49, and Acts chapter 1, verse 4. They're going to go wait for the Spirit. And as they head to Jerusalem in obedience, they worship him. And they do so with great joy. Meaning probably the descent 
from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem is probably full of psalm singing, prayer, worship, talking, confidence, clarity, all the other C's that I've told you. His arrival, listen to this as we close this. Listen now. This is so incredible that Luke does this. Think about the arrival of Christ back in Luke chapter 2, verse 10. It brought, this was good news of great what? Joy. In the same way that he starts when he comes bringing joy is the same way in which he leaves giving joy. The gospel started where it also began in Jerusalem. This began in Jerusalem. Now this gospel is ending in Jerusalem. Verse 53, as we go on, they're continually in the temple blessing God. Of course they're there. Of course they want to be in the temple. Some people say, do we have to go to church every Sunday? Like, what kind of question is that? You know and love Jesus. That's where you want to be. Of course they're there. But it's, this, is another, this is another thing where we began in the temple. Remember Zechariah? And we end in the temple. We begin with joy, we end with joy. We begin in Jerusalem, we end in Jerusalem. We begin in the temple, we end in the temple. And they're there all the time blessing God. So they obey him. They worship him because of who he is. They have great joy because of his salvific truth and their love for him, they obey him by going to Jerusalem, and they're continually in the temple worshiping. And Jesus is the object of their praise. What a fitting way to end Luke. Let me say this and we're done. Here's what they're praising for, because here's what they now understand. Praise be to God for his planned, perfectly executed, salvific work. They understand it now. Through his exalted Lord, which was his plan from the beginning of time, they were confused at times. And now they get it, and they see, and they're going to proclaim. Now, you know what's incredible is I think this is the exact same thing that we're going to say in heaven. We were confused at points, but now we fully understand. Praise be to God for his perfectly planned, perfectly executed, salvific work through his son, whom we now see face to face as the Lord. I mean, they're on fire and they're gonna leave Jerusalem the many disciples will, with the Holy Spirit proclaiming this. So church, until his return to take us home, we should live in this same response to the completed work of Christ. And we should go and proclaim it. We did it. You know what our reward is for completing this book? Starting another book. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your great word. Thank you for your word, which informs us and transforms us. Help us, Lord, to live now in light of your glorious truth. You are the Lord. You completed your work. We now get to go proclaim it. We have clarity from your word and from your spirit. And you will return. Thank you. We love you. We're humbled by your truth. 
let your truth keep having this effect on us. In Jesus' name, amen.